actually enjoyed math and art a lot. And I'd love to say that I had a great calling, but um, it was actually something whereby when I came to go to university, um, I was looking at doing quite a broad range of subjects, but actually it sort of brought together the math and art component from my A-levels. So no great romantic story, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> but when I got to university, I loved it from day one. So I knew it was the right decision. So as, as, a, as a, a child then, you weren't someone who'd sort of walk around looking up at all the buildings? I did love Lego. Um, <laughs> there I you used go. to rearrange my room probably an annoyingly large amount of times a week. <laughs> um, but I don't know if that's a sign that you're destined to be an architect. Well, you did go off to, to obviously study architecture and you were extremely successful as a student. And then, of course, worked on some very, very high profile and, and multi-award winning projects like uh, the Peckham Library, for instance. What do you have to do to make a library in Peckham an award winning building? It's an interesting one because it came at a time, it was actually in the sort of late 90s and it was a recession. I was actually very lucky to get a placement and it was in my year out. Um, but it was an unusual commission really in that the architect that I was working for was quite avant-garde. And so to do a sort of public building in a location where, you know, the community at the Peckham at the time was quite sort of low socioeconomic group, um, was quite risque, but it was immediately really popular. Also became a bit of a landmark, so so put Peckham on the map in many respects. Popular both in terms of the press and the people, which is usually not very likely to happen. <laughs> and with something like that, obviously, as you said, it's a public building. It also has a very specific practical use too. So with that sort of project, do you begin by thinking about the inside or the outside of the building? Well, what used to happen was that um, Will would begin by putting some paint onto paper and sort of using his hairdryer to blow it around a bit and then he'd pass it down to us and ask us to make it into a building and <laughs> was very much sort of disregard whether it was the inside or the outside and I remember one of my jobs was to do what were called the pods on the interior and they were sort of round yeah almost blob-like um, spaces that were um, inside the library and sort of double curvature, quite hard to, to make and really hard to put shelves up in, which we discovered, <laughs> which, which is a bit of a downside. But um, yeah, again, very popular, you know, really nice spaces. The kids loved them. It, you know, it became very different from your standard library env environment. Um, but conceptually, though, it was, you know, very broad brush approach. And it was very much uh, as somebody who's sort of working on the shop floor of the company at the time it was my job to to realize a, a abstract painting really it's interesting though that that approach of being as you, you described it sort of quite avant-garde because it's a real risk isn't it you have to be very brave to do that because as you know some very famous buildings have um, sort of illustrated over the years you are either going to have a lot of people love it or a lot of people hate it that is true but also it's it for at least one person if not in this case sort of publicly funded you're talking about a lot of money um, and it's a big gamble if it's not successful, both sort of from an architectural feasibility point of view in that it doesn't function, but also if it's not popular. And at that time, it was it, it was a sort of like mid-90s recession. So it was deemed a significant amount of money. So it was great that it was popular. It is good. And of course, you co-founded Assemblage as well. Um, so what was your goal then with creating the studio? Well, I had been working for some time and um, had enjoyed it, but really liked some commissions more than others in that I had done quite a lot of um, high-end residential work 
And whereas that's enjoyable on one level, it didn't really feel like I was contributing to sort of society at large, often doing sort of work for, say, one individual or, or in some cases sort of holiday homes for individuals that they might use sort of once a year for a, for a month. Um, and that's actually probably not the reason I sort of enjoyed architecture, so I wanted to contribute. So we tried um, to aim at work that would have a sort of broader brush contribution in terms of the global market, but also in terms of the sort of public people who, in addition to those who have lots of money. So in a way, that was behind it. And it hasn't always been the case. I mean, we've had to, um, as most businesses do, take often what commissions came along at a time if we didn't have a lot of work on. But we always tried to make time um, to do the the less well-funded but more sort of meaningful work within the company. And you have done such a huge variety. I mean, we only have only mentioned one of them now so far, the Peckham Library. But to go from something like that to working on regeneration schemes and, and in, for instance, the Holy City in Iraq as well. I mean, what a massive undertaking and to, to have to be presumably very sensitive to the culture in somewhere like that as well. Yeah, that's actually been quite difficult. I mean, even in before we took on the work in Iraq, and this is sort of as a consequence we were asked to do it, we actually did um, work in about 25 or so different um, boroughs and districts around the UK. But even within those districts, you have you know, certain populace would be, you know, a majority sort of Bangladeshi or majority sort of Muslim or um, even, you know, different sort of community groups, some... Um, seaside towns we had you know uh, the demographic were, were, were a lot older and obviously I was young at the time so you were often having to design for people who were very different from yourself um, and some people find that quite daunting and some people actually ignore it and just design for themselves which is always a mistake in my view um, but we actually it's part of the research and we've always straddled design and research so it's part of the research cycle is to learn as much as you can about the potential user group whatever their differences from your own and build on that in terms of the design but it often you know it just makes it richer both as a process for 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 me to work on it but also uh, the end result is often more successful to to understand the importance of what you add and also what's there already is really key it's not um, I remember being told very early on in my career that surgeons bury their mistakes but um, architects live with theirs and it's very very true um, so I think it is really important to be aware of what the significance of what you're doing and the, the permanence of what you're doing and also to understand how things age and how things you know, need to change as they become older and other things grow and change around them and not just you know, sort of treat everything as a, a one-off landmark because sometimes you can assume you know um, what, the, what the user group is because you, you deem them to be like yourself and actually you get it wrong because you haven't put the research in anyway. And you're also, though, um, looking at your projects, you you seem very sensitive and sympathetic to the environment as well. I mean, I'm thinking of, for instance, the, the Dirt Cove House in, in Clonakilty, for instance, and um, looking at that particular building. It's so beautiful and fits in so well to that sort of area. Um, and eco buildings as well, which, again, sort of very sympathetic to the environment. And I wonder how many of your clients you find are sort of taking an interest in that approach or do you, is, it, is it still sort of a bit of a battle when it comes to that? I think what really makes a difference is legislation because if you have a client who um, has to meet certain legislation, they will. Um, and often if it's inexpensive to go over and above 
that sort of standard that's drawn, then they will happily be persuaded. But if you're actually talking about significant amounts of money, whether it be in loss of deliverables or actual construction costs, it's actually still hard to persuade somebody to go over and above what the law requires them. So the big thing that we try and push, um, not necessarily through our work, but through our connections in the architectural world, is actually to push for increase in legislation and you find in other countries such as Germany that they have much more stringent legislation and as a result they have you know significantly lower energy usage um, but it is when you have a client who's of course counting counting their pennies um, to, to ask them to spend extra on anything is, is difficult um, but if as I say they have to because of legislation, then, and if everybody has to, then the products themselves become cheaper, um, the construction becomes cheaper because it's more readily available. So it's really, it, it's harder to do it through the client, and we shouldn't really be doing it through the client, we should be doing, doing it through the government. It, must, it sounds like it must be quite exhausting and quite frustrating at times, uh, dealing with all these sort of different areas. Oh, it's incredibly, like, <laughs> as a job... It's 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 like juggling constantly, and um, and sort of gasping for oxygen, um, and in some ways that's terrible. And people often say, oh, you know, with your children, would you like them to be architects? And I sort of think, God no, <laughs> but I enjoy it. But then I think maybe I'm a sort of particularly unusual and weird type of person. I don't know. <laughs> I'm intrigued as well. Going back to um, the, your work in Iraq, um, did you encounter any sort of challenges or prejudices as a woman working out there? Again, I'm just thinking about the sort of the difference in culture. Um, I have done, but then I have to be honest, I have done in the UK too. It's very easy um, for people to sort of say, oh, it, you know, it must be terribly corrupt or they, people must be very sexist um, because they have these um, predetermined views about the sort of Middle East. But actually, you know, you do encroach upon the same territory in your own hometown. So it, I wouldn't necessarily be um, particularly stereotyping there. I mean, we did actually, we have had problems because we, we, we don't, we're, we're not Muslim and a lot of the people, um, or Iraqi, and a lot of people actually um, have said that for us to design, as well as doing the parliament, we did UN um, housing settlements. And at times we're in a situation where we need to design mosques. And obviously it's an enormous learning curve for us to do that. Um, but And people were sceptical, but actually in terms of the end result, they were very happy. But they often you have to face that scepticism initially. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, that you do have encountered uh, some sort of prejudice as a woman in, in the UK as well. And I wonder, um, with regards to the industry itself, with the architecture industry, because you were highly commended in the Women in Architecture Awards, but w- what is the gender split then in the architecture world like? It's in teaching, um, the majority are now females. But as you um, go higher in terms of the employment world, the percentage is very low. I just couldn't tell you exactly what it is, but it's always quite frighteningly low. Um, it's it's not a job that lends itself particularly well to having um, part-time positions. Um, say, for example, if something's on site, the builder will want you there whenever he's on site, or he or she's on site. Um, and therefore, it's, it is quite hard for women um, who have children to take a part-time role. And you often find that women do therefore leave the profession as a result. Um, I've worked with a lot of women who are more junior than me, but very few women who are more senior than me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose it's a shame because I would have thought that as women we would obviously add add something a little different 
to the industry itself because we'd have a slightly different perspective on whether it's the artistic side or the socioeconomic side. We would we would potentially have quite a lot to offer. Yeah, I, I, I've seen a lot of really talented women leave the profession. Um, and I think sometimes the question is why the men stay. <laughs> I don't know if that's the, the bigger question. But um, yeah, it's a shame that there is not more done to, to accommodate um, women in, in architectural practice. But at the moment, it it isn't happening. Um, and when it does happen, it's usually through uh, a, a a female or a mixed company. Um, and therefore, it does come across as quite a misogynist world, which again sort of proliferates the problem. And so tell us a little bit then about the uh, master's course that you're leading and, and what would you hope students take away from that? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting course. It's actually one of the um, the first of its kind in that as well as dealing with architecture, I mean, I've previously taught on an urban design um, course and on um, architecture courses, but this one actually very much combines the two and it's about context and responding to context, um, which is great because in the work that we do as a practice, we don't sort of delineate between size. It's always response to whatever's needed and that will be scaled up accordingly. But um, it's really nice to teach in that environment too. And we've got, um, this is only the second year it's running, the, uh, at, at UCL and we've got 17 students that come from 10 different countries and four different continents and it's a very mixed bunch and they have a lot of different backgrounds mostly architectural but um, some have been working for some time and, and some are newly graduating from their degrees um, but they all are very engaged in the idea of looking at this historical context um, and they're all new to London. There's no London people in the group. So it's been an amazing journey just this year to go on with them um, to sort of see London through their eyes and, and teach them about London because we've been based in London this year. Um, but, I mean, I like to think that it's it's about opening your eyes as a designer, um, but what not only to the potential of what could be there, but what is there already. Um, and with regards to the design side of things, I suppose as a, an architect in designing buildings, obviously you, you, you have a direct impact on the space around people, don't you, with, with the buildings that you are designing and constructing. So do you, would you say that it is sort of crucial to have the sort of attitude that you, you are representing here in a way about sort of contributing to society? And, and I know that it mentions in your bio this idea of considerate architecture. Do you think that's sort of a crucial element now to being an architecture today in, I think it is. I think, unfortunately, um, it's been a, an art that has followed fashion, um, but it's you know it's very permanent things that we're that we're making, and they live alongside similarly um, important um, period constructions of a different age. And to actually to to understand the importance of what you add and also what's there already is really key. It's not. Um, I remember being told very early on in my career that surgeons bury their mistakes but um, architects live with theirs and it's very very true um, so I think it is really important to be aware of what um, the significance of what you're doing and the, the permanence of what you're doing um, and also to understand how things age and how things you know need to change as they become older and other things grow and change around them and not just you know sort of treat everything as a, a one-off landmark. Wonderful. Okay, a couple of fun, fun questions then to end. Uh, what building would you say, it can be new or old, uh, what building that you haven't worked on would you say you'd like to be able to tell people was actually yours? 
Oh, pretty much anything by Peter Zumpter, I would definitely say was mine. But um, he's, he's alive, so he can dispute me. So that's not so good. <laughs> and are there any in particular that when you see them, they just really make your skin crawl and you just really dislike them? Oh, that, unfortunately, there's too many of those. Um, I actually, from working in the Middle East, if I see anything that's in an environment that gets to sort of 50 degrees and is entirely made out of glass, that can set me off because it's nearly always pumping away with its air conditioning um, because it's you know not fit for its environment. But yeah, that happens a lot. And what do you make of buildings like, for instance, the Gherkin in London? Because it, it's really prominent, isn't it? I'm, I'm, but it, it does sort of get sort of lauded for different reasons. But I'm just curious as to what you make of it. It does. I actually, um, I don't mind the um, the gherkin. I don't like the walkie-talkie. Um, <laughs> and um, the shard only works from about the, the fourth floor up. But I, I think there's been quite a kickback in, in London about high-rises. And we're actually working in the Greenwich Peninsula at the moment, so it's coming up a lot. But I, I think that London can carry um, significant buildings in terms of height. Um, and I think they just need to be done, you know, designed well. If there's someone that is listening who is thinking they would really like to get into architecture, what sort of advice would you give them? I did a little bit of work experience before I went to university and that helped me a lot um, because I think the university education is very long and if you the first time you go into an office is only after you've done, you know, five years. Um, it can be a shock to your system if you then don't like it. So I'd get some work experience first to make sure that the commitment that you're taking on is something that you want to do. And obviously you did spend quite a bit of time on the Isle of Man, so I'm curious as to what you make of the, the mix of architecture over here. The thing I love about it is, is that um, it's got breathing space. And some of the work that I've done, say, in, in Cork, we've never actually done a building in the Isle of Man, unfortunately, but some of the work I've done in Cork, you can respond with your architecture to the landscape so much because you have this breathing space around you. And in London, everything's crammed together like sardines in terms of the architecture. Um, and whenever I go to the Isle of Man, I just think, actually, it's an architect's dream to, to work there because it's it's got so many amazing sites and, um, in, you know, incredible sort of environments to work in um and yet yeah, there's significant amount of space in, in order to, to build something that actually did respond to the environment so do you think there's a chance in the future you might come over here and build something oh i'd love to yeah i'd love to any excuse so anyone's listening let's get a commission right now <laughs> <laughs>